Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 90. Heads or Tails. Da Balina, Vero Sufficit, Sirex Habiat Caput, et Regina Codam, Bracton, L3, C3. Latin from the books of Laws of England, which taken along with the context, means that of all whales captured by anybody on the coast of that land, the king, as honorary grand harpooner, must have the head and the queen be respectfully presented with the tail, a division which in the whale is much like halving an apple. There is no intermediate remainder. Now, as this law, under a modified form, is to this day in force in England, and as it offers in various respects a strange anomaly touching the general law of fast and loose fish, it is here treated of in a separate chapter on the same courteous principle that prompts the English railways to bid the expense of a separate car specially reserved for the accommodation of royalty. In the first place, in curious proof of the fact that the above-mentioned law is still in force, I proceed to lay before you a circumstance that happened within the last two years. It seems that some honest mariners of Dover or Sandwich or some one of the sank ports, had after a hard chase succeeded in killing and beaching a fine whale, which they had originally described afar off from the shore. Now the sank ports are partially or somehow under the jurisdiction of a sort of policeman or beadle called Lord Warden. Holding the office directly from the Crown, I believe all the royal emoluments incident to the sank port territories become by assignment his. By some writers, this office is called a sinecure, but not so, because the Lord Warden is busily employed at times in fobbing his perquisites, which are his chiefly by virtue of that same fobbing of them. Now, when these poor sunburnt mariners, barefooted and with their trousers, rolled high up on their ely legs, had wearily hauled their fat fish high and dry, promising themselves a good £150 from their precious oil and bone, and in fantasy sipping rare tea with their wives and good ale, with their cronies upon the strength of their respective shares, up steps a very learned and most Christian and charitable gentleman with a copy of Blackstone under his arm, and laying it upon the whale's head, he says, hands off this fish, my master's is a fast fish. I seize it as the Lord Warden's. Upon this, the poor mariners in their respectful consternation, so truly English, knowing not what to say, fall to vigorously scratching their heads all round, meanwhile ruefully glancing from the whale to the stranger. But that did in no wise mend the matter or at all soften the hard heart of the learned gentleman with the copy of Blackstone. At length, one of them, after long scratching about for his ideas, made bold to speak. Please, sir, who is the Lord Warden? The Duke. But the Duke had nothing to do with taking this fish. It is his. We have been at great trouble and peril and some expense, and is all to go to the Duke's benefit. We getting nothing at all for our pains but our blisters. It is his. Is the Duke so very poor as to be forced to this desperate mode of getting a livelihood? It is his. 
I thought to relieve my old bedridden mother by part of my share of this whale. It is his. Won't the Duke be content with a quarter of a half? It is his. In a word, the whale was seized and sold, and His Grace the Duke of Wellington received the money, thinking that viewed in some particular lights, the case might be a bare possibility in some small degree be deemed, under the circumstances, a rather hard one. And an honest clergyman of the town respectfully addressed a note to His Grace, begging him to take the case of those unfortunate mariners into full consideration. To which my Lord Duke, in substance, replied, both letters were published, that he had already done so and received the money and would be obliged to the reverend gentleman if for the future he, the reverend gentleman, would decline meddling with other people's business. Is this the still militant old man standing at the corners of three kingdoms on all hands coercing arms of beggars? It will readily be seen that in this case the alleged right of the duke to the whale was a delegated one from the sovereign. We must needs inquire, then, on what principle the sovereign is originally invested with that right. The law itself has already been set forth, but Plowden gives us the reason for it. Says Plowden, the whale so caught belongs to the king and queen because of its superior excellence, and by the soundest commentators, this has ever been held a cogent argument in such matters. But why should the king have the head and the queen the tail? A reason for that, ye lawyers. In his treatise on Queen Gold, or Queen Pin Money, an old king's bench author, one William Prime, thus discurseth, Ye tail is ye queen's, that ye queen's wardrobe may be supplied with ye whalebone. Now, this was written at a time when the black limber bone of the Greenland or right whale was largely used in ladies' bodices. But this same bone is not in the tail, it is in the head, which is a sad mistake for a sagacious lawyer like Prynne. But is the queen a mermaid to be presented with a tail? An allegorical meaning may lurk here. There are two royal fish, so styled by the English law writers, the whale and the sturgeon, both royal property under certain limitations, and nominally supplying the tenth branch of the crown's ordinary revenue. I know not that any other author has hinted of the matter. But by inference, it seems to me that the sturgeon must be divided in the same way as the whale, the king receiving the highly dense and elastic head peculiar to that fish, which, symbolically regarded, may possibly be humorously grounded upon some presumed congeniality. And thus there seems a reason in all things, even in law.